The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour is a guy who is uh, thankfully flexible with his calendar, even though I had to reschedule this conversation, Daniel uh, McNamara. Dan, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get involved in interested in markets? And uh, are you really that worried about commercial real estate? <laughs> Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, so my name is Dan McNamara. Um, I founded Popo Capital in 2021. Popo Capital is a uh, CMBS credit hedge fund. Um, we founded it in 2021 with the belief post-COVID, kind of the commercial real estate market was changing, you know, fundamentally changing in different sectors. And, and we thought that... Uh, Given the ultra low interest rates and the changes within retail and office, we felt like the next two to drop at some point was going to be in commercial real estate and, and commercial real estate in general would be at the heart of distress. So that's, you know, my brief background. I've been doing this for about 20 years, always in CMBS and with a focus on credit. Um, we're a long short manager. So, you know, just as much as we're trying to uncover, uh, interesting CMBS credit bonds on the long side. Um, we obviously are spending a lot of time today focusing on shorts within the commercial real estate and CMBS sectors um, where we can express some of our, what I would deem bearish views, uh, specifically in the office sector. So to answer your question, in short, I'm very concerned about certain parts of the commercial real estate market. Definitely anything kind of class A or below in office. Um, we've had this secular change in the way we work. And, you know, I'm a big believer. I don't, you know, as of the last couple of years, I, I never really believed that we were going to go back or the majority of us were going to go back five days a week. I believe the hybrid, given the technology surrounding us and the flexibility the technology gives us, hybrid was here to stay. And, you know, unfortunately, that's going to cause um, some serious pain uh, in the office sector, especially in the lower quality office like B and C office. Yeah, that's that's my brief background there. So you use the uh, the term correctly. So at some point, uh, that it's going to matter in a big way. Obviously, the headlines are more and more focused on commercial real estate. What what is there a catalyst for there to be some real distress, or is it one of those things where just suddenly, for whatever reason, the investors in the market broadly starts to care about this? Well, that's a, that's a good question because you know if you look at the delinquency rate in CMBS right now, you know we're still below four percent. Which is really nothing, you know. Four percent delinquency rate is is nothing to really worry about, and we're not even there yet. The biggest issue and the biggest worry I have 
it is this kind of way, this wall of maturity that we're, we're starting to get here. Between now and the end of 2025, you've got about 1.4 trillion of CRE debt that needs to be refied. And, and, and that's a problem. It, w- it would be a lot of debt anyways in a normal market environment. Um, in general, there's about $4.5 trillion of CRE debt, and it's about $11 trillion market. So it's a very large market. And we're now coming into this wall of maturity that without, you know, CMBS right now year to date is down about 90% to last year's ish- new issuance. Last year's new issuance, we did about $75 billion, and that was not a great year. So you're talking about the CMBS market, which is effectively shut. You know, we are getting a couple deals done here and there, but nothing like we're used to. You then have, you know, the largest lenders in CRE space are regional banks, and everyone knows what's going on there. So it's a really daunting task to think that we're going to be able to digest these maturities. And, and really, that's that's what we're we're trying to uncover here is that you know we think that there's going to be a a large amount of losses for the people that are holding this debt, whether that's in loan or or bond form. And we also think though that you know what the commercial real estate market does well, especially in you know when there's cyclical issues like some of the sectors are having, um, we think there'll be a lot of extensions. You know, the banks don't want to realize losses if they can kick the can and extend and pretend. And, you know, CMBS bondholders will do the same thing. Special servicers will give extensions when when necessary. So I think this is going to take a long, long time to play out. Right. So, so basically, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's more of a, a process that's going to be lumpy, frustrating, and um, opportunistic for managers like you rather than Something everybody sees all at once. Agreed, agreed. Because we just, while there is you know plenty of dry powder at times on the sidelines, um, you know you always hear about dry powder. People are dying, you know, dying to get their hands on distressed debt. And I think Barry Sternlich said something yesterday. Uh, was quoted as saying something similar, and that's true. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we're one of those players who you know we're excited about the opportunities to, you know, debt has become expensive for sponsors, and and from that perspective. You know, you can actually get a decent return if if you're careful about your credit work. But the this is not going to happen all at once. I mean, this is this is going to be a multi year process. Um, there's going to be pain from you know sponsors. There's going to be pain from some of the current debt holders. But there's also going to be a lot of opportunities. You know, broadly speaking, I'm not you know I don't paint commercial real estate with this with this broad brush, right? You, you know, you have all these different sectors. You've got, um, you know, office clearly is is the one in kind of the crosshairs of everybody. And, you know, that's going to be probably where the most of the pain is felt. But, you know, if you start, you step away, you kind of have, you know, in retail, for example, it's a, it's a, a tale of the haves and haves not. Your, your class A retail um, is doing pretty well. You know, some of your lower quality enclosed regional malls are either dead or dying. But what that does is provide opportunity because you've got assets in the same sector that are thriving. And then you have some other assets that are that are kind of dying, you know, from a, you know, another sector that's very similar is hospitality. People don't talk about hospitality as much, but it's a it's a large sector in our space. And, you know, you have business travel that's slowed dramatically. And I'm not a big believer that I think business travel is getting back to 2019 numbers anytime soon or maybe anytime in my career because of the way we work now. But that being said, you know, the, the, the leisure hotels, they're doing great. They're, you know, through 2019 numbers. And honestly, I couldn't be more bullish on anything in our space. Some of these higher end hotels that are catering, catering to people who are dying to, to travel again. 
So it, it's 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 a very diverse market and complicated market. And there's going to be a tremendous opportunity alongside. And today, I still think there's a tremendous opportunity on the short side, also. And presumably, because it's it's that's the kind of path that you see or sequence, it becomes hard for the Fed to really step in and do much because if if you have sort of a disjointed default or disjointed stress, right? It's hard for the Fed to to lower rates and then uh, try to bring them back up and then lower them again for the refinancing. I'd argue it's actually easier for the Fed to deal with a crisis when it's all at once as opposed to when it's a kind of a rolling uh, crisis. I, I completely agree with you there. You know, if we just kind of compare this to 2008, and, and this is clearly a different situation, you know, 2008 was more about the residential market, not that there wasn't pain felt across you know, asset classes in general. But that, that was probably a clearer, obvious way for the Fed to deal with this, right, and, and to lower interest rates. The, the problem was more cyclical than anything. You know, I, I, a lot of extensions were given in our market, you know, and basically time did heal a lot of wounds. In this case, you know, you've got certain properties that are thriving and, and, and don't need lower interest rates. And in fact, you know, lower interest rates could, you know, hurt the broader economy. Um, I think everybody that's in commercial real estate or, or an owner of commercial real estate today they're all calling for lower interest rates. And, and honestly, I'm not a big believer in that in general. You know, I don't necessarily think that a three and a half percent tenure note is that high. So and if we can't deal with a three and a half percent tenure note, then, then we've got real big problems. So for me, I don't think the Fed is going to be the savior of the commercial real estate market. I think this is, you know, this is just a cycle that needs to play out. Losses need to be taken. You know, and again, there will be plenty of opportunity if, if you're thoughtful about credit, but but you really got to be careful here because it's it's become a credit picker's market, and and unlike the majority of the time between 2009 and and let's say 20, where you could just basically buy anything and it would go up, now you have to be really thoughtful about risk and risk management. Let's talk about how geographics play into this. I mean, presumably certain sectors of commercial real estate, office, retail, hospitality, all that will obviously differ by state. I had Grover Norquist on yesterday, and he was bringing up this whole point about how a lot of these states are lowering taxes, uh, which is causing, even going to zero, which is causing a lot of migration by workers who not only now can work remotely, but also get the benefits of lower state income tax. Are there certain parts of the country that you're focused more on on the short side? Uh, supposed to long side. So yeah, without a doubt. I mean, CMBS broadly is, is geographically diverse. So it's not as easy as just saying, "Well, I want to be short San Francisco office space." But that being said, you know, we are as we go with, through these deals with you know fifty loans in an average CMBS deal, call it. You know, you do spend a lot of time trying to get your hands around you know the obvious problem childs in our market, which you know San Francisco office you know just it cannot get out of its own way. And there's so many issues in San Francisco, right? It's, just, it's it was overbuilt because of the tech boom, and now you know a lot of the tech companies aren't making people come back in five days a week. Um, but then you've got the political issues there, and, and in general, you know you're seeing a lot of people leave that area, and whether they're headed down to you know South Florida or Austin, which is you know two places clearly from a tax perspective is advantageous for people to move to. 
you know, you are seeing these have and have nots just geographically too, right? And, uh, you know, one of the few places I would love to own office right now is in Southern Florida. <laughs> I mean, that's the only place where we talk to people where you're like, oh yeah, I am building an office building. Now, the only problem is you still got to get debt on it, but but overall, you know, for the right property in the right location, you know, I, people are looking for opportunities to finance these things. So geographics are paying a huge huge role in in what's going on behind the scenes in commercial real estate. If you were going to guess at how the drawdown plays out across the board in commercial real estate, I mean, how severe of a of a decline would you expect on average? So that's a tough market. It's you know, tough to say in general, you know, given all the sectors, broadly speaking, I think you could see across the board a 20 to 30% repricing in different commercial real estate sectors. But you, you got to realize that it, within those numbers, broadly speaking, you could have, you know, there's headlines out in the last week or two where two San Francisco offices are up on the market and they're expected to trade down 80% from 2019 numbers. So, you know, you've got stuff that's down 80%. And it, honestly, you've got multifamily in certain, you know, let's just say the Sun Belt that's thriving and NOIs are up dramatically. And, and actually that property has appreciated in the last four or five years. So it's really hard to kind of paint it all with the same brush. But again, it, I think that's what makes the opportunity so interesting is that you can be thoughtful about risk and, and where geographically you want to play, where in the capital stack do you want to play, regardless of just saying, hey, I'm, you know, I just don't think it's very smart today. But like, I'm really bullish on commercial real estate because I want to be a contrarian. That's, you know, that's to me is, is a dangerous move because if you're not careful, you're going to buy the wrong stuff or maybe you'll buy it too early. That being said, I, I, I don't think this is the big short. I don't. I, you know, broadly speaking, I think that you, know, you have to be very balanced in the way you invest in this market today, whether that be in securities or loans or equities on the commercial real estate side. Um, I don't know if, sh- you know, shorting Boston properties or SL Green, given you know, their 75, 80% drop in their stock price, is necessarily a good move. I don't think those companies are going anywhere. And again, we don't invest in equities, but, you know, I just think that. You may have seen from a publicity perspective a peak bearishness in office space. I mean, you just – I pick up Twitter or I pick up the Wall Street Journal or whatever it is and, you know, you know, you just read my Twitter feed. It's a lot of negative news. It really is. You know, that being said, we're going to get through this. There are still needs for some office space to be, you know, some people to be in the office five days a week. Um, you've seen JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs come out and say that they, they would, they want their, they want their employees back five days a week. And that, and that makes a ton of sense to me. Very large companies where young people are learning and through osmosis of the senior people. If you're Jamie Diamond, you need those people back in the office five days a week, even if you risk kind of alienating some of your, older, more senior employees. It's actually, you kind of hit on, on a direction I wanted to go, which is just in general thinking about the efficiency of the space. I mean, to your point, if everyone is overly bearish uh, on office, then presumably the, the price is already reflecting that um, to some extent or to a large extent. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. 
Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. right? You can look at the stock prices of, of some of these REITs and equity space. You know they've gotten decimated, so uh, it's it's difficult. Even in the CMBX space, you know we we've moved down at the bottom of the capital stack. You know twenty twenty five percent over the last year, um, we've moved lower. Now that doesn't sound like a big move, but you know you you do have these these investment grade indices that were trading in the nineties not too long ago, and now they're trading in you know call it the low seventies depending on the index. So you you've got a repricing. Um, you definitely have plenty of fear out there. But I don't think there's 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 too many obvious outright shorts in the market that you you know I, I just believe that you have to be more thoughtful and pair it with other things because everybody knows office is struggling everybody <laughs> um, the question is you know how do you play it and you know I think there there are ways to play it in different instruments but you just got to be very careful this is this is not 2008 and you know the big short. This is more of a nuanced market right now, and and, and you got to be very careful. Yeah, and actually, the 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 point about this being a nuanced market is not just isolated to CMBS. I mean, you've got so many different markets moving in ways that seems unusual. You've got you know even just in public equities, large caps holding up nicely, small caps on a relative basis looking like a better way of saying it like death because of the co movement with regional <laughs> banks, right? So no, you, you don't have that kind of co movement that you saw during the great financial crisis. There's a lot more dispersion i'd argue internally in different asset classes yes no no totally you're seeing the dispersion and, and, and you know sometimes when you look at the broader markets you almost don't think that much is going on today's obviously an exception the markets are doing incredibly well but sometimes you know given the banks are getting hammered on a day but the tech stocks are saving the banks or, or saving the indices broadly you really need to understand what's going on beneath the surface um, and, and what's going on, you know, commercial real estate specifically, and whether that be on the lending side or, or you know, what's going on with the warehouse lines that all these large banks have out to some of the shadow banks that I would say that make a lot of loans. You, you really got to look below the surface because there's so many cross currents, and it's very difficult to kind of get your finger on what exactly is going to happen over the next six to twelve months, whether that be broadly in macro or you know. Or just specific to CMBS or, or commercial real estate. Speaking of uh, below the surface and kind of getting more detailed, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on just in general the reaction to regional banks, especially the last couple of days here. I mean, I've noted on Twitter that when you look at the regional bank equities, uh, even when you include today, I mean, they're basically crashing like it's another lockdown. Do you get a sense that the, the marketplace in general is just treating this all with one broad brush? I'm going to assume that the the debt side of the regional banks looks maybe different than the equity side. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no doubt about it. There's a there's a witch hunt right now going on in, in the regional banking space, and I think right now that you know the first thing everyone wants to talk about is the mismatch between assets and liabilities, and, and really the, the biggest issue for some of these banks was was just their duration. Um, you know, you, you had these they owned a bunch of two percent mortgage bonds that. Of negative convexity, and when rates rise, all of a sudden your duration extends massively. And then uh, you know you have these deposits that once some there's smoke, uh, everyone runs. So the first part of this wave, on in my opinion, on the regional banking side was all about interest rates. And I'm surprised it took 
that long for interest rates to become a worry. I mean, in the lending markets and CMBS markets last year, the focus was on interest rates, right? We had a you know, interest rates going up 300 plus basis points. And, and what is that going to do to valuations and cap rates and everything else? Well, clearly cap rates go higher, valuations go lower. But that, to me, was something more cyclical. The issue now, I think, that's coming you know more into light and more maybe with what a signature bank had issues with is is commercial real estate. You know, you, you've had some of these regional banks that probably became a little too comfortable with taking the deposits and lending in the commercial real estate market. And, and, and now I think that is going to be more of the focus where, okay, we have an interest rate issue, but now we have a credit issue. And, you know, how much, how many credit issues do we have within the, the regional banking system? And honestly, that's a really difficult question to answer. You know, generally a percentage basis, how much is CRE, but, you know, just broadly painting commercial real estate loans, you know, with the same brush, it's difficult. Again, you know, you've also had certain banks that are very focused on construction lending versus other banks that are mostly focused on multifamily, you know, down south, which is doing fine. So I now think that it's it's going to be more about digging in and figuring out, you know, who was over leveraging themselves to the commercial real estate market or certain sectors of the commercial real estate market versus who is being thoughtful about risk. And even though the commercial real estate, you know, they, they may have large exposure to the commercial real estate market, that doesn't mean they're going out of business. That doesn't mean they made bad loans. It just means that, you know, it's going to be a bumpy ride for a little bit until we digest all these things. Yeah. Presumably there's going to be consolidation. I had somebody tweet at me saying in three, four years, it's going to be clear that the outcome of all this is that there's going to be just a, a three bank system and the Federal Reserve as far as you know, uh, the U.S. And you know, while that sounds extreme, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of the the whole point, right? The the too big to fail dynamic is still alive and well. It's just that these regional banks are not too big to fail. Yeah, no, that and that's kind of scary, right? Because you know the regional banking system exists for good reasons. You know, you're they are your local lender whether that be for a business loan or personal loan or commercial real estate loan, whatever it is, they traditionally are the ones that are lending to small businesses. And, and obviously small businesses are so important to our economy. So we need a regional banking system and they need to do something about this because we can't just have, you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan. That's not going to be good for the economy. That's not going to be good for anybody. So we need to do something to instill confidence in some of these regional banks. Um, you know, I, I still think that the, the shedding of certain banks, you know, it's cyclical and, and it's probably healthy. You know, some of these banks that mismanage risk and whatnot. You know, I'm not saying every bank that's gone under deserved it, but sometimes you know that's what you need in a recession or repricing in the market is kind of just a cleanse of of some of these um, poorly run banks or mismanaged banks at times. So we'll see. I, I just I think there there'll probably be you know more failures without a doubt. But we just got to make sure there's no more bank runs. Um, you know, we got to make sure that the depositors are protected and and there's confidence in the system. Um, but you know, stock price. I'm sure there'll be more banks that stock prices are going to zero, bonds are getting wiped. And again, I don't think that's a major issue as long as we we, we keep confidence in the overall system. On that point about that sort of refinancing uh, wall um, that you see coming uh, between now and and 2025, I, I've I've long made this argument that I think we're this a credit event out there. Um, and for me, it was more than just commercial real estate, just a function of a lot of corporate loans coming out of COVID had a maturity of three, four years. So you end up having a lot of, you know, potentially zombie companies having to roll over and refinance into higher rates. And who knows if they're going to be actually be able to do that and survive. 
presumably the bond market's going to see this and start to, you know, credit spreads will start to widen way in advance to sort of send a message uh, to the Fed, right? You haven't really quite seen that yet, but from your experience, what's sort of a typical uh, response time by the market to when a refinancing stress might occur, right? Because it's never when the actual refinancing occurs, it's it's with a delay or rather with a with a lead time. Yeah, no, there's always a bit of a lag in a lead time. I, I personally, it's interesting when you look at the corporate market because you really aren't seeing too many signs of distress there in high yield spreads or IG spreads. In the in the CMBS market overall, you know we've had a repricing, and some of that's just due to fear of of you know being fired. People don't necessarily want to say, "Hey, you know what I really like here? I want to invest in commercial real estate bonds." But what you've seen in the in the CMBS market is the credit curve steepen dramatically, and basically uh, that just means you know from triple A's all the way down to call it double B, single B, the bottom of our capital stack. You've seen people say we don't want any more real credit risk. Triple A CMBS is is pretty loss remote. I I hope we never see a scenario where thirty percent credit enhanced bonds are getting taking losses. I don't think we will. We didn't see it in two thousand eight, and I don't think we'll see it now. But the the corporate market is just shrugging this off, which which is very interesting because, like you said, there's going to be a ton of supply in that side of things, and some of that's going to be. What I would say, dodgy supply, right? You, you, you've had companies that looked great coming out of COVID because of, of zero interest rates and, and their business model was hot and everyone was throwing money at it. But today, you know, as they come kind of in this new environment with interest rates 300 basis points higher, I think you are going to see some zombie companies and you're going to see some more bankruptcies and, and you know, the, the distressed corporate debt market kind of come back to life. You know, we haven't had one of those in a long time. And again, I think that's a healthy cycle, and and we just need to figure out, you know, what companies can kind of survive over the next five to ten years in this new interest rate regime, because I, I really just don't believe that the Fed taking rates back to zero. And if if the Fed does start cutting rates, I think we have much bigger problems. Just to reset the room for everybody here, please make sure you follow uh, Dan McNamara here on Twitter. Again, if any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. As, as always, this will be a podcast under Read Lag Live. Let's expand a little bit on the retail side uh, for a bit here, Dan. The um, Every time I look at the retailer stocks, it's always amazing to me. Um, they peaked relative to the S&P 500 back in 2021, which I'd argue is Early 2021, when the bear market really started, and the trend keeps on lowering. In other words, you know, uh, the retail stocks keep on underperforming. So there seems to be bet that consumers are going to keep on weakening against the backdrop of strong employment numbers, uh, which we can debate. But within the retail space, what are some of the areas that uh, you think could really actually thrive in in what you see coming? Well, you know, you, you've got your Class A operators, right? You've got your Simons who 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 have taken advantage of everything that's been thrown at them. They're, they are, you know, class, overall, they're a class A operator and, and most of their properties are, are thriving right now. But what they did in the last, you know, I would just say post COVID in general, you know, the last few years is they shed all of their lower quality assets that, you know, they didn't believe in over the next five to 10 years. Um, and, they, you know, they weren't the only ones, but I use them as an example because you basically had what was viewed as a mall company pre 2020. And then you had David Simon coming out, you know, post COVID saying, we are not a mall company. So I, I just think that's interesting. And I, and I think that's really smart where, you know, you're pivoting, you see the writing on the wall, you see what's going to work in this new environment as e-commerce continues to take up, um, 
you know, a bite out of the brick and mortar. You're, you're seeing firms that didn't really adjust to this new world. Uh, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond is obviously one on everyone's mind. You know, one of their former companies, I just saw our headline today, that Christmas Tree Shops is going to be bankrupt also. So, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond, it wasn't too long ago, we were post-COVID, we were watching their stock go bonkers. Uh, you know, became a meme stock and, you know, that was a little silly, obviously, at times, because um, now you, you've got a company that that, that is bankrupt. So, retail is going to be really interesting. You know, people still want to go out and, and, and touch and feel stuff and try stuff on, but they don't want to necessarily do it in a dark and closed, dirty mall. So I, I think that retail to me on the higher end, I was always pretty positive on it. Um, I think it's probably even outperformed even my thoughts. But that being said, there's still a lot of pain to be felt and probably a lot of bankruptcies in retail coming. So I, I think the uh, the retail liquidators out there are going to be very busy over the next couple of years. Let's talk about sort of just um, local effects when you have vacancies and, and bankruptcies among retailers and, and office space. I mean, presumably there is a link between uh, that and crime and people wanting to leave. I mean, you know, it, I'm going to assume that as this plays out, there's going to be some interesting kind of migration dynamics as a result that, that come out of this. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, without a doubt, you know, you're seeing the, let's just use New York City as an example, and you can use Office if you want, and, you know, New York City's budget relies significantly on uh, commercial real estate taxes, right? So you're going to see budget cuts, which is going to lead to, you know, probably more crime. It's going to lead to New York City, what it feels like at times, you know, feeling a little dodgier and, and, and distressed and, you know, people migrating away from the city, whether that to be go to the burbs or whether that actually means, you know, we're going down to, to Miami or Palm Beach or whatever it is where a lot of the finance jobs are headed. But it, it does feel a little scary from a, a a death spiral in certain cities. I mean, San Francisco, I don't, I hate picking on them over and over again, but it's the easiest one to pick on. Um, you just, the, the migration wave out of San Francisco and into the burbs or into different States, um, whether that be Texas or Florida, it's real. And it's, you know, it's happening every day. And I, and I think that, you know, San Francisco is going to have a very, very hard, difficult time bouncing back. But that being said, you know, if we just use New York as an example, I, you know, I don't think, this is going to be 1970s, you know, New York, New York City is burning. But I, you know, I do think that politically, we got to get our arms around the fact that commercial real estate prices don't just go up every year, and you know, you're going to be dealing with a budget surplus from from all these real estate taxes. You're going to need to right size everything and be very careful about our spending because if you don't. Um, you're going to, you're going to have major issues down the road. I mean, we all know it, we all see it eventually you're going to pay the piper. So, you know, that's a, that's a scary, scary thought of, of these, these budgets in different municipalities that are very strained. So what, um, 
the hedge fund for the, for a bit and how you how you manage position sizing and and trade and and do research. Um, first of all, I want to make the assumption that once you have a thesis on a particular credit issue, you're not necessarily trading it very actively because it takes some time for these these things to play out. But how do you go about managing uh, risk and managing position size uh, in the context of the different sectors that you're analyzing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, we're you're right. The, when you're dealing in the CMBS credit space, and just to take a step back, like AAA CMBS is about eighty percent of the market. So when you're you're dealing in a very small niche part of of the market, when you're dealing in just in CMBS credit, and it's primarily money managers um, and hedge funds that play in that space. To up the stack in triple A's, it's insurance companies, it's banks, you know, some money managers still playing triple A's, a lot of do actually, pension funds, etc. But the credit space is small and it takes an extremely large amount of work because the way we look at the world when we're investing long or short in CMBS credit is we're looking at all the underlying loans in a deal and re-underwriting them and coming up with our own terminal value. You know, what are what are these 50 properties in this one CMBS deal worth? And, you know, whether we're going long or short, we're doing the same process, right? We're, we're underwriting and coming up with our own valuations. You know, at times, obviously, you know, if a deal was done five years ago, there could be NOI growth in certain sectors. And then obviously, NOI could deteriorate or, or, or vice versa. So for us, the heavy lifting is the underwriting. And that's, and that's really where we spend all of our time. And then you get to how do you source the assets you want? I mean, this is a market that you have to remember. This is not a market that trades electronically. It still trades like it's 1986. You know, everything's either over a Bloomberg or over you know uh, the phone, um, and you know nothing is cleared. Even when our derivatives aren't centrally cleared, they're all over the counter. So it's a very slow moving market, which requires a lot of heavy lifting, and it's all done by institutional accounts. There's really not a retail aspect to our market. In fact, you know, people always ask me, how, how do I, how can I short CMBS? I see that there's a, there's actually an ETF that says CMBS, um, the ticker is CMBS. What people don't realize is if you're shorting that, the majority of the assets in that thing are AAA and government guaranteed CMBS agency bonds. So you're not, you're not really shorting that, that San Francisco office like you think you are if, if you're buying puts on uh, the CMBS ETF. So it, it's, it's definitely an institutional market. It's it's definitely takes a lot of work. You kind of have to come at it as a bond trader, but also more, com- almost more as a commercial real estate investor, and and be thoughtful about whether you're you know what you're buying and where you're buying the capital stack. From a sizing you know sizing positions, it's not easy to size positions in our market because it's such a small market. Yeah, the liquidity's got to be very low, right? It's yeah, it's low. very low. I mean. The indices on the CMBX side, which is, you know, again, we're talking about our, our, our indices, our most liquid weight hedge, you know, you're basically dealing down in credit, you know, 5 million up you know, on the bid or the offer. So it's, it's, there's not a ton of liquidity there, which means actually, you know, a lot of the bigger players, the large names, they don't necessarily play down in the CMBS credit market because they can't size it and they can't scale it. Um, it's good for us. It's good for you know your smaller, nimble managers because you know a few million of a bond or five million of an index short. Um, that's very meaningful. But it's we don't have a hard limit on our position sizing. You know, just broadly speaking, at Popo Capital. But you know, we do think a lot about you know how we're managing our risk and you know what what size is too big. 
in an individual position or an individual sector. But it, it, I wouldn't say there's any hard and fast rules from that perspective. It, it probably it's you really can't in our market versus whether you're dealing in public equities or something more liquid. Which I'm assume I'm going to assume makes it challenging to find the right kind of investors, right? Because you know you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that you've got some kind of gate or something that you know certain uh, intervals under which investors can can request their funds back. I mean, you don't, you don't want to have a liquid hedge fund somebody can can redeem from when you've got illiquid securities underneath it exactly exactly and, and, and w- one of the things we in the hedge in our hedge fund we only invest in in bonds um and we won't put loans in the fund and that's from a liquidity perspective um because you are you know your traditional hedge fund liquidity is quarterly with a 60 usually like a 60 day heads up so you got to be very careful about what's going into the fund you know, and, and, and how you're you're managing that liquidity risk because these, while they are bonds, you know, they're credit bonds and, and they're what I would deem less liquid. So th- that point of it, you know, managing liquidity by, but also you know, getting exposure to kind of the juiciest pieces of the CMBS credit market, whether they're long or short, you've got to be very careful. Um, for us, I think the biggest thing too is knowing that we're playing in a less liquid market is managing your leverage that i think that's the most important part and people sometimes don't realize the embedded leverage in these tranches right these these cmbs tranches where you're cutting up from AAA all the way down to unrated pieces of bonds you have a significant amount of embedded leverage in there so you know for us we'll never use more than eternal leverage and we just don't believe that you need it we saw in 2008 and, and even in 2020 even though it was quick we saw a lot of firms, you know, struggle with leverage, and you saw a lot of margin calls, and a lot of people get stopped out in March of 2020 or, or April of 2020 at the lows, which was devastating because you basically, we always talk about impairment from a credit perspective, but you basically had impairment to these funds because they got stopped out of positions at the lows. Um, so if you look at the performance of whether they're money managers or hedge funds in our space in 2020, you had managers that were up 20% in certain pockets of money, and you had managers that are down 50. And that was cl- that was almost all leverage. You know, it, things bounced back so quickly. And in reality, we didn't have that many credit issues because of the Fed's actions. So um, we think a lot about liquidity but i think more importantly the leverage we're putting in into our book yeah and presumably also that then there's uh, i'm going to assume a lot of back and forth uh, around the net position right so a lot of people talk about long and short but yeah the net long or net short is what really drives the ultimate performance so how do you how do you go about that sort of differential yeah so you know our nets are our, our gross position like i said are, are would never be more than 200 percent because we keep our leverage very low but our net positioning is something that could change all the time. I mean, for, for the most part last year, uh, our belief was the credit curve was going to continue to steepen. So we were running a small net negative. So we were effectively, our, our portfolio was, was slightly net short. Again, I say slightly because it's very difficult to time these things. You don't necessarily know when there's going to be a dramatic repricing in CMBX or, or any instrument you're using to hedge. So you got to be very careful about that. And, you know, even though we, we, we really had the highest conviction in, in some of our shorts, we were still what we were doing on the long side is we were buying and we still are buying interest only securities because I believe, like we touched on earlier, there's this is going to play out two different ways. 
you're going to have major losses on, you know, certain assets. Let's just say a C office that was a 50 LTV theoretically six, seven years ago is, is now 150 LTV. That's where the losses are going to come from. But what we need to get our, our arms around is what's going to, the majority of the loans aren't necessarily 150 LTV today. You know, you have interest rates that are pressuring some fundamentally sound markets, whether it be multifamily and industrial. And yes, interest rates are higher, so cap rates are slightly higher, so valuations are up. And you know what we like to look at is some of those other sectors or some of those other loans in, in these CMBS deals where LTVs are higher. Yes, refinance refinancing is going to be difficult because your loan went from a 60 LTV to an 80 LTV. But what's going to happen there is extensions. Um, you're going to have, whether it be if it's in bond form, the special servicer, or if it's you know a loan sitting on a bank, you're going to see a massive wave of extensions. Uh, less so in the, the lower quality you know office space or, or lower quality hospitality space, but more so in everything else where you know sectors where we're just digesting higher cap rates, sectors where valuations are down a little bit, but you know it, it, it's it's not a major credit issue. So that's what we're doing on our long side of the book is we believe if you buy interest only securities, which are just cash flows stripped off the bonds, these are you know, they could be two three year interest only securities. But when you get these extensions of the underlying loans, all of a sudden these IO strips, these cash flows that are just you know just stripped off the, the CMBS uh, bonds, they become three four year bonds. So for us, it's kind of a unique way to play the distress in CRE and CMBS, where we're betting on losses on the most levered pieces of the CMBS because. There's no other way to deal with this 1.4 trillion coming without the regional banks, without the CMBS market. Yeah, I mean, even the insurance companies who, who are a major lender to our market, usually on higher quality assets, even they're pulling back. And, you know, everyone's trying to protect their own job. Everyone's trying to, you know, save face. No one wants to do anything risky right now in CRE. So it's, you know, origination volumes will be down across the board. And that's naturally going to lead to higher delinquencies, but in my opinion, even more extensions. I'm going to assume that the moment you start seeing things really uh, show signs of stress, you're going to tell everybody on Twitter <laughs> to short the shit out of somebody. <laughs> no, but, the, uh, but, but actually, I, I'm actually kind of um, where I'm going with this is, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always big on sort of these delayed uh, spillover effects, right? So there's the argument that credit leads equities, right? So if there's going to be real stress that impacts stocks, you should see it first in Presumably, some of the positions that you're shorting really kind of really working in a, in a suddenly much bigger way. From experience, Dan, are there how long is the typical lead time that that you know commercial real estate you know, CMBS would when their stress would start to uh, matter for equity public market investors? That's a tough question to answer, and then that's only because it depends on what what sector is going to be stressing the system. I mean, as we talked about, an office is the biggest problem in our market, and office is the longest duration asset in our market. And that's just meaning that, you know, the leases are, are, are longer term versus, uh, you know, the shortest duration asset in our market would be hotels, right? Because, you know, theoretically, your lease could be one day. Whereas office space, you've got five, seven, 10 year leases or even longer in some places. So, given that and given the slow nature moving of the market, the lead time, it's going to be a while. I mean, you know, whether that's a year, it's difficult to say. 
it's also difficult to say when the worries around office really started. I mean, I, I, I was jumping up and down a couple of years ago um, when we were launching Popo saying, you know, my biggest issue is finding longs to put against the shorts because I think office is going to be a complete disaster. You know, now today we've, we've had major repricings in some of these sectors. You know, some of them are fully repriced to where we think they'll go. But I, I just, the focus on office that it really started, I would say towards, you know, the beginning of this year was surprising to me that it took people this long to really start freaking out. I mean, the data, if you just look at occupancy data in, in a lot of these cities, like Castle Tracks or, or whoever you want to use, we've really plateaued. You know, the new normal in New York City is probably going to be 50 something odd occupancy. I mean, maybe it gets to 60, maybe. Um, you know, you've got Austin around 60 or so. Maybe that that's, just seems like where it's plateaued. And that's that's our new normal. And, you know, I, again, it's, it's to put a number on the lag, the lag time, it's, it's difficult. Um, but I think we're, we're now starting to get everybody, even the CRE owners and sponsors on the same page where, okay, we have a problem and we need to deal with it. I mean, you heard RXR come out and say uh, last month, you know, they were going to probably give the keys back on, uh, on some portion, small portion of their portfolio. And they're very large office owners. When you start seeing that and you start seeing the Brookfields of the world give the keys back or say they may give the keys back on certain assets, that the, the institutional players, the large, you know, smart, smart money, that's going to start to trickle down to kind of the mid-level players. Um, you, you have to remember that, you know, this has really only been an institution. The CRE market's only been an institutional market for maybe 25, 30 years. Before that, it was very segmented in smaller players. There is still plenty of smaller players out there. And and I think that, you know, some of them I'm sure will do just fine. But I think you're going to start to see some bodies floating to the surface over the next 12 months where people got over levered or people didn't get, you know, buy their interest rate caps or or whatever it is, or they just got stuck in, you know, a bad office property that's never coming back. You know, this is going to be I I, I don't know if equities just seem to be shrugging it off. I mean, obviously the SP is doing just great today and 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 has had a great start to the year, but commercial real estate is such a large part of GDP and 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 we can't have a wounded commercial real estate market and just ignore it, broadly speaking, from a macro perspective. Are you seeing a lot of um, new entrants or competitors in the hedge fund space that you know, kind of thinking along the same lines as you? They, they, they see an opportunity, and and just these kind of you know traders are getting involved, or is it still pretty niche in terms of how many are actively um, starting and, and engaging? Yeah, what we're seeing in our market is. You know, your traditional CMBS and structured product hedge funds that play in these derivatives that want, you know, to express bearish positions, it's a small market. But what happens is when there when there's this massive wave of distress that's either coming or, or just starting, you're we're getting a significant amount of incoming from very, very large hedge funds. And their question, I know their question before we hop, you know, on a Zoom or on a call is how do I how do I short office? How do I do this in CMBX? And my answer is, depending on, you know, who it is or how big this person is, is you got to be careful because you are at right now, you may be too big for the market or it may not be worth your time. You know, and we're talking about 10, 15, 20, 30 billion dollar hedge funds who, whether they make their money on the equity side of the business or the macro side of the business, they're looking at CNBX saying, okay, well, maybe these equities have repriced, but 
why is CMBX only down 20, 25%? You know, that thing should go to zero. And that's the other side of the coin too. These CMBX instruments are only, they are, there's one every year. It comes out every January right now. Our most recent is CMBX 16. So it was all loans that came out in January of 2023. So it was all loans done in 2022. And you, in these different instruments, because we keep talking about the sectors and how there's winners and losers, you have plenty of properties that, you know, NOIs up dramatically and maybe the valuation of the property is higher. So it's it's definitely not like shorting ABX in 2008 where, you know, you didn't have to worry about covering because you're just going to go to zero. Um, it's 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 a nuanced trade. And and I think it's a trade that's done right, you know, could produce some some impressive returns. But it's it's not a market for very very large players it's it's difficult we just don't have the open interest anymore you know the most public short battle whatever in our market was the regional mall trade in cmbx6 now the one thing you know the largest player in that market it's you know publicly he's been talking about it since COVID or a little before COVID was a carl icon and you know the difference there was you had very large money managers on the other side of that trade, and you had open interest over ten billion in the credit in the credit part of CMBX six. Well, today, if you look at the credit part of our markets, you know nobody wants to take the other side of an office short. So you're talking about you went from being able to short billions of CMBX six and, and, and express bearish views on malls to being able to short hundreds of millions of of more re- recent vintage CMBX. So. That was a long-winded answer. Uh, long-winded answer to your question that there is a significant amount of interest to come into short CMBX, but I think what people are finding is it's not as easy as it sounds. That's a uh, good place to wrap this Twitter space up, Dan. Aside from Twitter, uh, where else can people find some of your thoughts and, and work? Uh, just Twitter, really. I, I, I try to keep up with Twitter. I, I, I get pulled in many different directions, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. All right, thank you, everybody, for joining. Appreciate uh, your time here. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.